0: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Octavia, and Octavia was married to a victim-playing narcissistic abuser. It's a story of immigration abuse, the hope for change, rages, guilt, gaslighting, and financial abuse. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick and with me today we have Octavia. How are you?
1: I'm good, Brandon. How are you?
0: I am doing well, and thank you for being here. And if you want to be a guest like Octavia is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. At the top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions, and either send us an email at at NarcissistApocalypse.gmail.com Or fill out our guest form and press the submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. Please do keep on sending in your stories. We need more stories uh, for everyone to uh, learn from and to get validated from. So please send in your stories if you want to share your story and help our community. And for today's episode, we do have a content warning as we do discuss physical abuse in this episode. So that is your content warning right there. And today's story, we're going to be doing a hybrid today. It's kind of a little bit of a Q&A uh, at the beginning here before we get into Octavia's story. And this story of Octavia has a lot to do with immigration abuse, how that becomes... Part of her story, it's not all of her story, but it's uh, something that we haven't really covered on our show before, so i'm just going to get into a little bit about how dangerous it is for uh, new immigrants into uh, just a, a new country and, and being taken advantage of, and you know how vulnerable they can be on top of you know the vulnerability for a lot of people that are in abusive relationships there's just this added layer when it comes to being a new immigrant and I'm about to get into a lot of that information before we get to talking to Octavia and hearing her story today. So when it comes to abuse and immigration, you know, entering a new country as an immigrant or an asylum seeker or as a refugee can be a very confusing and overwhelming experience just by itself. And unfortunately, this process can leave many immigrants especially women, everyone, especially women, vulnerable to abusive partners and family members when it comes to coming into a country and having those family members already being there in that community and you know, not knowing how to maneuver your way out when it's all you have. So the risk associated with immigrants and asylum seekers and refugee population has to do with the complexity of an unfamiliar legal system completely foreign legal system that they're now in. And then the potential conflict between cultural backgrounds and new surroundings can really make, you know, these refugees, asylum seekers, and immigrants, you know, suffer from abuse that they feel they can't leave, that they're in these abusive relationships. They don't know if they can disclose things to law enforcement or, or anyone. They don't know how the system works at all. This is tricky enough for someone who lives here to know how to deal with the, the system. But when you're coming from another country and, and really have no idea how anything works, it is a, a big, 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 big problem for them. And that leaves them especially uh, vulnerable to abusive people in abusive situations. So when I was thinking about the abuser in these Situations when it comes to the abuser and a narcissistic abuser, many many of them will look at someone who is an immigrant as less than. And yes, it is true that somebody who is a new immigrant to a country is more vulnerable. It doesn't mean that they are less of a person for being a new immigrant or for being an asylum seeker or a refugee, but for a narcissistic abuser, they will see it as this person is less than them, and they will immediately see themselves as just being above them, and it gives them this kind of mental leverage, you know, for them to feel or see themselves as being more powerful. And narcissistic abuse is under the umbrella, of course, of control. And for an abuser, right off the bat, they can see so many different leverage points on gaining control and gaining power by, by getting into a relationship with someone who is a new immigrant. But also, if you have an abusive family that is kind of already here and you're all new immigrants, but they might have been here a little bit before you, you could have come with them. You know, again, you're in a place that you don't know And this can happen within the family system as well in in new immigrant families or asylum seekers or refugees because you don't know how the system works here and you don't know who you can go to and you're also now in these smaller communities and you don't know who to trust at all. So what are the different types of abuse immigrant survivors may suffer? And there can be abuse of legal systems. And as I said before, there's this cultural background abuse, like a person's culture can be a source of comfort when you're coming to a new Country, because it's a big, big, big transition. But when it comes to an abusive relationship or abusive family that you might be with, they might be able to really use this whole entire system to isolate you and freeze you out from everyone and, and further abuse you. So, here are some ways that abusers may try to keep power and control over immigrant. Uh, victims, the ones that are undocumented. You know, they might stop someone from learning English. They might refuse to let the victims speak with friends or family from uh, their home country to tell them what is actually going on. They might be threatening to report or actually report an undocumented victim to immigration officials or to the police. The abuser might withdraw or threaten to withdraw applications for lawful permanent residence, such as a green card. An abuser may falsely file criminal charges with the police against a victim. An abuser might also falsely file criminal charges with the police against a victim in an attempt to get them deported for a criminal conviction or plea. An abuser might destroy the victim's uh, important documents like their passport, their resident card, health insurance, Driver's license, proof of relationship with the abuser. You know, these things might be happening. Anything that they think is like necessary for them to get an upper hand over you, specifically when it comes to your legal immigration status. An abuser might lie to the victim and tell them that they will be deported or lose their residency or citizenship if they report that their abuser is being abusive toward them. You know, they'll, they'll scare them to say, like, if you report me to the police, you're going to lose everything. Another thing a an abuser does is get the victim fired from their job by telling their employer that the victim is undocumented. Another thing that they might say, an abuser might say to the victim in this situation is if you do go to the police to report Everything that is going on, your children will be deported. Like you'll lose everything. They start putting the fear of losing your whole entire family into this situation. And another one that goes kind of hand in hand here is telling the victim in the situation that because that they are undocumented, that they have the upper hand, the abuser will have the upper hand when it comes to children. So if you do report me and we do end up getting divorced, you know, uh, that the abuser is trying to show them or tell them that they will be the one that gets the kids because they are an undocumented uh, immigrant in, in the country. And another, you know, big thing or a, a, a troublesome thing that happens here is when it comes to the whole system as a whole and accurate information that you're trying to translate when a victim is trying to translate what is going on to the authorities, to judges, doctors, anyone in positions of, of power. You know, if you're trying to translate your story and you're a new immigrant, you're, you're not the greatest with your language. It's very difficult to have your story translated properly of what you want uh, these people in power to understand. So the system as a whole becomes an abusive structure because it's not set up for you if there isn't an, like an independent uh, interpreter around, you know, you're, you're in the hopes in the future that you do go to a place that there are independent interpreters around. So, you know, if you do call the domestic violence hotline in the United States, I know that they do have people there that do speak other languages for, for you to talk to. So the system is getting better, but it is not perfect. And then the last thing on our list is kind of something that we've briefly discussed, which is just threatening to have them deported, uh, to another country while well, they're going to keep the children in, in this country and that you'll be separated them to, from them forever. And that can really keep you in these relationships for a long time when it comes to someone who is a new immigrant or an asylum seeker or a refugee. And, you know, accessing resources is a really big issue. As I've already mentioned, the system as a whole is difficult to navigate when you are a new immigrant. And, you know, a lot of times you're in small communities. If you're in a large town or a city and victims really feel like scared to come forward, you know, you're scared that the entire community will know about the abuse. You know, you could get gossip or, or rejection, which could isolate, you know, the victim further. And then sometimes the people that you're dealing with within the system aren't the best people, and some service providers could be biased against immigrants, asylum seekers or refugees, while others just don't have the knowledge or resources to help. So there's a lot of prejudice in the system, language barriers in the system, and, you know, confusing social service procedures that go on. There's a lot of weird red tape, you know, know, for someone who's just an abuse survivor that is a new immigrant, there's a lot of red tape, a lot of different procedures of stuff that's discouraging and you know throw on top that you're a new immigrant you might not know the language that well or how the system works it's just very discour- discouraging for someone who's a new immigrant that that's in this position that's seeking support and doing their best to try and find it but it, it can be very uh, difficult and, and it is, it's scary so now with all of that kind of being said right there and kind of giving you a, a little bit of a primer of what it is like to be a uh, new immigrant, and when it comes to abuse and the things that can be held over your head, we're going to get back now to Octavia because there's a lot of stuff that I've just mentioned that is um, part of Octavia's story. And I just really want to thank Octavia for being here with us today. And now I'm just going to get out of my way and your way. Octavia, the floor is now yours. I
1: am from Colombia. I uh, have one sister and we were born and raised in Colombia in a happy family. Um, I never experienced any kind of abuse or addictions in my family. So it was a pretty, pretty happy childhood, I would say. So I was always very determined, I would say. I was the kind of person that if I wanted something, I would work hard for it and I would get it. And I live and I grew up with my parents being together and going through very difficult situations and they stayed together. So I guess I grew up with that mentality of marriage is for life, no matter what. And that's how it was so hard for me to just give up in my marriage i wanted to keep going and i wanted to try hard to make it work and i was always very happy and i was very familiar i love my family they are a big part of my life and i wanted to have them always with me and we were always together you know and going on trips and I grew up with that like happy and easy childhood and um just very happy I would say like I don't have very bad memories from my childhood
0: what do you think would happen to you if you were to have gotten divorced in your thought process at a very young age
1: I would think that our world would have gone to an end that's how I felt that's how strong I felt in marriage was and it was very scary for me because I grew up even my friends most of them had like they both parents together not a lot of uh, divorced kids or anything like that um, so I was just very scared and it was very stigmatized I would say like getting a divorce because you marry in front of God and you don't want to disappoint it. And people in Colombia can be very dodgy. So like if you get a divorce, they wouldn't understand that you really tried and it just didn't work out.
0: So eventually you wanted to experience more of the world and you decided to come to the United States to work in the au pair program where you were planning on working for a family to take care of their child uh, for 12 months. So what happens from here?
1: Um, When I was 23 years old, I decided to come to the United States as an au pair, which is a very popular program. Um, I wanted to improve my English and I wanted to travel, you know, a little bit out of the country. So that was like the best opportunity. Without thinking that I was going to stay or anything like that. I stayed my first year and then I'm like, I need to stay one more year doing this because it's a lot of fun. So I met my ex. It was I was doing dating apps on and off all the time. I was dating with guys, but I, know, I knew I wasn't going to stay in the country. So it wasn't anything serious. But then one day I was with some friends at a um, parade. And he was, uh, was very, very handsome. And all of my friends were looking at him because he kept looking at us. But we weren't sure who he was looking at. So after a while, I decided to just wave hi to him. And when I did that, he just waved right back at me. So he ended up coming to us. He introduced himself. And it was like, wow, magic. Like love at first sight that's how it felt that moment we ended up going um on a barbecue with my friends and some of his friends he was um volunteer firefighter so he was there with them um after that he asked for my number and we kind of like hit it up from the beginning we started dating right away it was very intense i would say um now that i Compared with some other relationships that I had, I could say that like from the first moment I was feeling all of like, I was having all of these feelings all at once. And for me, it was like, this is the magic that I wanted to feel. So since we started dating, he was treating me like I was the best thing he ever had. And he would tell me all the time that I was like a god and uh, he was so lucky to have me, and I was the best person that he could ever have. And he also always compared me with his ex, um, saying that I had what she didn't have, and um, he's very happy he ended that relationship, and he wanted to be with me forever. and So all of these, all the right things. I felt I was the luckiest girl alive. I'm like, nobody ever loved me like he did he's doing. And what did I do to deserve this? And also he was very handsome. So I'm like, he's like I can't believe a person like him he, he will just um pay attention on someone like me. So it was all of these feelings um that I had when we just started dating that they made me feel very happy and I felt that I found um the person for me.
0: So when it comes to this person, when you initially meet them, uh, how is he presenting himself to you? Like, how does he want to be seen? We've already heard that he has uh, this partner that he keeps on talking about where it sounds like he's kind of playing the victim already. And that person is as we'll find out the uh, mother to his son and the son eventually plays a part in, in your story. But at this time, right off the bat here, you know, how does he want you and everyone else to see him and how does he view himself?
1: Okay. So when I met him, he was a volunteer firefighter and he was also a mechanic. So, um, he always showed himself as he was very smart and as he always knew everything, you know? Um, So that's, he, like, with me and in front of my friends and my family, he will be the most loving person. So he will always be, like, telling me all the nicest things when we were in front of my family or my friends. Even when I was, like, FaceTiming anyone, he would get in the camera and start talking to me. Like, just to show that he was present in my life and that he paid attention to me. Um, And he, that's how he was with his friends. But something that it was very odd and I didn't pay attention in the moment is that he didn't have long-time friends. All his friends were from the moment. Like, I met this person six months ago but the person I met two years ago is not my friend anymore because they did me bad. That's what he would always say. Everyone will always did something bad to him. At his jobs, they will always fire him because um, of something unfair or he didn't deserve it or they didn't pay him what he deserved. And he thought he was God that knows everything, that does everything well, and that's the picture he wanted to show of himself in front of everyone and i guess that's also what it made me always feel inferior to him
0: and what did he say about his uh previous uh relationship with the mother of that child
1: so they were actually together a long time ago because the child was like 6 7 years old when i met him and they Broke up with the uh, son's mother when the baby was just born. So I mean, he had more relationships after that. But like with her, he would say, for example, when she got pregnant, he used to say that the father told him that he had to marry her. That in his culture, they had to marry the daughter. By the way, so it's like I didn't want to marry her, but but like this kind of stuff, he would always tell me and put himself as. As a victim with her, like saying that she was very strong and she um, just didn't like him. (laughs) Or even with his last relationship before me, this this other person, which he would say that he will always picture himself as everyone missing him after they leave him. Mm -hmm. So with this ex-girlfriend, he would tell me that even after they broke up, he said one story that one time. He saw her like driving and she had like a flat tire or something. And that uh, she called him after saying, Oh, I miss you because I know you would have come and fixed my flat tire. Stuff like that. Just to make it look like he's so good that everyone wants to be with him. Yeah.
0: So eventually the abuse begins. So walk us through what happens here.
1: I think um I recall the first big fight. It was after a month of dating. Um, we were—he was driving a a motorcycle. He picked me up. I am not very comfortable with motorcycles, but he was going very fast. Please, just stop or slow down. Um, when we got to his friend's house, I was very upset, and I said, "Like, I don't want to ride a bike ever again with you." And he was so upset that he threw the helmet through the floor. And I never experienced something like that ever before in my life. So I got very scared. I went inside to his friend's house. And um, I guess his friends knew him because he started talking to me about him and just telling me, like, just be careful with him. And my ex overheard the conversation. So after that, he dropped me off at my house and he said that he was going to break up with me because I was in his ride or die. And I was talking behind his back. Um, I felt really bad. Uh, I would say I was surprised of myself because we were just dating for a month and I felt my whole world was like going to pieces. I'm like, I just met this guy, but like, why am I feeling this way? Like, um, it was really bad. So that was the first time we had like a we get got into a big fight. And then I would say after that, he was kind of calling me some names, then getting very upset um until the point that it was just out of control. So when we were dating, it was just like little things here and there, some fights here and there, and then he would apo- apologize. And then we'll continue. And until one point, I discovered that he was an alcoholic. So I didn't know. We would hang out with friends and go out to bars as you know, usual. and I guess I never realized he was drinking more or he would never stop drinking, for example. So one day he had a DWI. He called me in the middle of the night and he said that they caught him um, like completely blacked out from like he was driving a tow truck at the moment. And he had a bottle of beer in the middle of his legs. So I had to pick him up from the police station. And that's when I discovered that there was a problem um, with him. I didn't know what to do and I wanted to be a good girlfriend and support him. So I decided to stay with him and just help him. I thought, very naive of me, that with my love, I would just make everything better. (laughs) Um, So after a few months later, he actually went to rehab for a month. He came back and then he proposed to me.
0: So how how long into this relationship has he proposed to you?
1: It was... um, like nine months after we started dating,
0: so nine months after you start dating, and he has already kind of exhibited these rages that are going on, he's picking fights with you over nothing.
1: Yes, he would pick fights with me over nothing. he would get very upset with me for the smallest thing, so I had to be always very careful of. What to say around him or what to do? For example, I remember one fight. For it was for Halloween, we went to this bar and we had costumes. And I had I was like a police girl, and I didn't want to wear the hat just because I didn't feel comfortable, comfortable wearing the hat. And he got so upset to the point that we left the bar. We didn't even stay with our friends. We went to his ba- to his house, and um. He let me sleep in his room and he went to sleep in the car and it felt so bad. I'm like, oh my God, like, I can't believe that I made him feel that way. Or I made him feel so uncomfortable that he ended up sleeping in the car. But I think it was kind of like a control thing. Now that I see it, in the moment, I just felt really bad. I'm like, I'm not going to do that again. I'm just going to do what he says. So that's how it started. Like little by little, these little things, I'm like, I I was just feeling bad for him. And because of the drinking, I wasn't sure when he was drunk and when he wasn't. So I always blamed the the alcohol. I thought it was just the alcohol. And the person behind the alcohol, it was just a great man.
0: And are you blaming yourself for things? Uh, Because it sounds like... He's using guilt a lot when it comes to, you know, making you feel a specific way. You know, it, are, are are you feeling like things are are your fault besides the alcohol?
1: Yes, definitely. In the moment, um, I guess it was kind of at the beginning. I wasn't sure it was my fault. So when things were like, because sometimes he will fight over very stupid or random things so when something was like that i'm like no he is the alcohol but when it was something for example like this like not wearing the hat for halloween i'm like i could have just wore the hat like um so i would blame myself and uh, there was definitely a lot of guilt and then getting into their relationship and getting married to him it got to the point that he, he got me, you know, um, I thought I had control over my feelings and I thought I had control over um, what I thought about me as a person. I thought everything he said about me, it was true.
0: So eventually you do get married, as you stated, nine months in. So what happens from there?
1: So... And I would just like to mention about the wedding day because I always dreamed about getting married. So it was very important to me. My parents from Colombia and my sister, they came. And um, I asked for two things. I am, I was like, let's do it as how you want. He's a country boy. So like with the boots, with the hat, let's do it your way. Um, but I asked, I want you to write. The house, and also, I want you to be sober. I don't want you to drink that day, please. First thing we get married, he's extremely drunk. Um, he smoked a lot of weed, so he could barely stand up uh, by himself. And also, he said beautiful words, but then later on the end re- of the relationship, he confessed to me that he didn't write the vows. And it felt like betrayed, you know? I'm um, like, I just asked you for two things. And I had you in the book with, like, his vows, her vows, and his vows are, like, empty. And that's how I felt my, my marriage started, like, as a lie, you know, with that, um, with him. So after the wedding, um, we moved into an apartment together. We have fights here and there because also he picked up the alcohol very heavily. So every couple of weeks he would decide to stop drinking, but doing it by himself, then he would do it. Then he would like start doing it again. So it was like on and off, plus our relationship was going downhill. We were fighting a lot at the moment. I didn't have a car. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have a stable job. So I was basically depending on him.
0: Did you have to quit your job as an au pair once you married him?
1: Uh, yes. So I didn't have to quit my job, uh, although we moved kind of far. So I ended up just changing jobs and I had a part-time job, but it was like just two days a week and the rest of the days I was at home. The thing is that He would drink very heavily. Sometimes he wouldn't come home. Uh, He wouldn't uh, answer my, my texts or my calls. And I didn't have a car. And if he would get upset with me, he wouldn't let me use the car. So I was like, I felt like in jail, being in the house. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't talk to anyone because I didn't want anyone to know the reality of this man that I love. You know, I wanted everyone to think that he was this wonderful person that I tried to show because I was scared that they would judge me um, for picking a man like that.
0: So things are going downhill pretty quickly right here. And eventually his son becomes a weapon of his abuse. And the child went from... Being with you once every 15 days to all of a sudden being there every weekend and you're being told that it's because the child's mother is, you know, being neglectful or just doesn't want the child all the time, which isn't the truth, but will eventually get there. So let's just get back to how is the child of the abuser being used to further the abuse of you, but also of him?
1: With his son. I always considered he was a good dad, but when I think about it and the way he was treating him and treating me, he always made it look like his son and I had to compete for his love. He couldn't love the both of us at the same time, the same way. So he either, uh, like we both have to be good to be, loved by him so if his son one day did something wrong or got him upset then he would love me more and show me more love and he would do the same thing to me so from there after almost a year in this kind of situation we ended up having a big fight um at this point he was already calling me names yelling at me, treating me like I was nothing, like I didn't deserve to be with a person like him. So um, we had a big fight. He pushed me. I wanted to talk things and just go through our problems. And he just pushed me and he left the house. So, I mean, he never pushed me before. Nobody ever pushed me. So... I was in shock. I called a friend. I, I ended up leaving. I stayed with friends for about a month. But then I ended up coming back to the house. Then I stayed for like two weeks. And I'm like, you need to stop drinking. The drinking is really bad for you. And we can't work it out if you're drinking. So he's he started drinking again. I ended up leaving the house. It's time for good because I found um, room but he stayed with my car. It was my car, but he couldn't drive because of the DWI. His license was suspended. But he said, since he fixed my car all the time, then it was his car. So he didn't let me keep it. And the first thing he did was driving drunk. And the police called him because he hit another car and he just left the scene. And I remember I called him and I'm like, I just need, the license plates just skip the car if you want i just need the license plate so this was i think one of the um broad bottom for him uh he was super drunk he was telling me somebody's pranking you this is not the police calling you about the car i'm good i'm not drunk i'm like you're very drunk so he at the next day when he was sober he ended up saying he was going to give me back the car he did the same thing that night So I ended up taking him to rehab again because that's what he wanted, you know. So he went to rehab for about two months. He started sending me some love letters. I would talk to him every time I could. I went to his family reunion at this rehab place. And um, I thought, this is rock bottom. From now or from this point, it's just going to get better. So when he came back to the house, when he got out of rehab, I ended up going back, living with him. And um, after like a month of living with him. He had court from the hit and run and he ended up going to jail. So that was very unexpected. He stayed in jail for two months. Then they told him to decide if he was going to stay in jail for one year or if he was going to rehab for about six months, so he decided to go to uh, to the rehab so for about eight to nine months, I was by myself in the house, just taking care of everything and he was very grateful he It was the best time of our relationship a relationship which is funny to say because he wasn't even around but we got to talk a lot and he was doing all this um work on himself or i'm getting better and promising the world and the moon and the stars and he's like i'm forever thankful for what you're doing because you're not giving up on me and when i get uh, get out of this I'm i promise i'm gonna get a job and i'll just pay you back for everything you're doing so i'm like okay This is something really bad, but something very good is coming out of it. So I'm taking it. And I'm his wife, and I don't want him to think that he has nobody in his life. So I put my pants on, and I worked very hard to maintain our home. He got out of the rehab before the time. He was, like, selling cigarettes inside the place, and that wasn't allowed. They discovered that, and they ended up, like, uh, kicking him out of the place. So he came back to the house and with all these promises. So I'm like, this is just going to get better. <laughs> but um he never got a job because he thought that he was better than anybody else and nobody was paying him what he actually deserved because he he always thought that he was very smart and he was um the best person in his field he was a mechanic so no job under 30 dollars was good for him and nobody was gonna pay a next convict 30 dollars for a job that he didn't even have a lot of experience so he just didn't work and he started fishing and I kept working but now with him in the house which it was very difficult because then it wasn't just the uh, the mental abuse and the psychological abuse. It was the financial abuse. This is when he started asking me for money to buy things, to buy clothes, to buy stuff for his son. And I was barely making making it for the both of us to survive in the house that we were living and to survive the, the type of life that we were having. I had the money for bills and stuff like that. He would ask me, for example, Oh, I want to buy a hoodie. And I said, I didn't have money. So he would be like, Show me your bank account. So if I showed him, and of course I had money, it was like, I'm lying to him. If I didn't show him because I knew I had money and I didn't want him to know, he would say, I was lying to him. So he would, continuously saying that I wasn't his right or die. And he would make me feel very guilty. So I thought like being in a marriage, it was. Being in a ride or die, and I had to do anything for the other person, even if that would be illegal or affect me, my integrity.
0: He was constantly making you prove yourself to him. Yes. And using guilt as the way to get that done.
1: Exactly. Yes. And um, I thought I had it under control. And then I started questioning question myself and I'm like, wait, but because he, will, oh, he started telling me, I've done so much for this relationship. I went to rehab. I changed. I stopped drinking. I am such a good person now and I'm much better. What have you done? So I would say, well, I'm working hard to maintain this home and um to pay for everything and i'm trying to just keep up with you you know and he's like what else and i'm like i don't know what else so that's how it started i'm like oh my goodness yes he's he's doing so much and i'm doing nothing you know and i that's when i guess i lost completely control of myself as a person and I started to become very depressed and anxious. I started to have panic attacks every time we had like a big fight, every time he would call me names. And this was like the darkest times of our relationship, like since he got out of rehab and until the moment that I decided to, to leave. Because those months, he the abuse, it was daily. Before it was once a couple of days or once a week or, you know, this time it was every single day that he was just calling me names, calling me that I wasn't worth it, calling me that I was nobody, calling me that I wouldn't make it in this world without him. And I'm like, well, yeah, maybe he's right. Maybe I do need him in my life to survive. He wasn't working, so that was really hard. And then he started fishing, and he would go on these fishing trips for two, three days. He would go fishing in the middle of the night. I felt like I was by myself. I didn't have a husband. I didn't have a person to rely on because he was never there for me. And then we lived in an apartment. I'm very close to the apartment. There was like a storage unit where he just spent a lot of time there. And (laughs) he would spend nights there. And at this moment, I'm like, maybe he was cheating on me. But I was so fed up with everything else that I didn't even have like time to think that something else was happening. He would smoke a lot of weed. So that was the other thing. He wasn't drinking anymore but he wasn't he was smoking a lot of weed and i was like well you're not actually sober <laughs> because when you're an addict you need to stop all your addictions so you're kind of like cheating and he was like no how can you say that the the weed is for my anxiety and i need it to keep me good but if he smoked a lot of weed it was the same as when he was drunk but he if he didn't smoke with he was super cranky and he started to lo- to lose a lot of weight he would blame me for that because i was working from like 7 a.m to six thirty seven p.m so i would cook like meal prep for the week for the two of us he didn't eat that then i'm like maybe if i leave it in the container for the day maybe he'll eat it is he just have to um Heat it up and he wouldn't eat it. And then he, would, I remember he would show me his belt and he had like made by himself some extra holes. And he would be like, Look how thin I am. You're not even taking care of me. Like, what kind of wife you are. And I'm like, Oh my God, yes, I'm so terrible. But I had the food there. He just had to eat it. And I was working all day. I couldn't, I couldn't do. More than what I was already doing, so fast forward to the end, because this was for a couple months. it got to the point that he would get very upset with me for every little thing I would say. um he wouldn't even let me cry um and I would say this was like the lowest point for me. um uh, I was completely by, by myself, I was feeling that I lost my marriage I felt that i there was no way out of this situation and I couldn't even cry so I remember I used to cry in the bathroom while I would take a shower it was the only space that I had for myself and one day my parents called me and they say we're very worried about you because your ex called us saying that you are so depressed he doesn't know why that he hears you crying in the bathroom and he doesn't know how to help you. And I'm like, what? So of course he's telling this side of the story, making him look like a good husband and he's trying to help his wife, but he was the one who wouldn't even let me cry in front of him. So that's what I had to do. And my dad ended up coming from Colombia to stay with me for about two weeks just to cheer me up. And I needed that that energy and I needed my dad.
0: Did you tell him what was actually going on?
1: Yes. I. After, I would say, the first year of our marriage, I ended up telling them some things here and there. I would tell them about the alcohol, but I wouldn't say about the whole abuse part i felt very ashamed of it i didn't want anyone to know the way he was treating me so now that i'm out of their relationship when i talk to them about that i will tell them the whole story and they're like you just told us this part i will skip the the abuse i would skip the the bad words or the name calling and just get to the point where we were just fighting so they kind of they didn't understand very well what was going on um but at that point my dad i just told him absolutely everything and even though he didn't speak english he understood the face and you know the expressions and his tone he knew the way he was treating me so it was definitely very very hard for him to see that
0: and when it comes to you being a citizen or not being a citizen yet and you're married to this person, does immigration status become a big reason for staying in the relationship and fear of the possible the possibility that if you do leave, that you'll have to leave as a whole?
1: Definitely so that was your thing and when you get married and you're an immigrant in in here you need to go through the process to get the the green card and all this time I couldn't do it because I I ate a lot of money I saved the money or some people borrow me money for like two three times and every time I had all the money something would happen and he would be like There is an emergency. We need to spend the money on this. And he, but I'm like, no, but the papers, like this is good for the both of us because if I can work in something that I actually went to school for, it would be better for us. And he would be like, yeah, but what's more important? Your papers or our life together, the life that we're building together. So that's how he kept like pushing back my immigration status and at the end I was thinking I can't live without my papers I went through all of this and I was very scared because then at the by the end of their relationship he started threatening me with um, immigration saying that he was going to deport me he would always say that I came from a third world country um, making me feel very bad from because I was from Colombia and I was like less than him because he was from, from here. And at the end of the relationship I saved the money. I sent the papers. I just he needed just to sign. And when I sent them is when the immigration part started with him. Every single day he was threatening me with getting me deported. He was threatening me with calling immigration and saying that I married him for the papers. And I was very scared. I didn't marry him for the papers. I was all in for love, you know. I loved him with all my heart. And that made me feel very sad that he would say that. And at this point, with all the abuse, with all the mistreating, I started questioning why would I have to wait all of this time to get the papers while being with a person that treats me this way. I'm like, I don't think the U.S. government would want anyone to go through this because it's not human, you know? So this is when, when I started looking to different organizations that they help, uh, victims of domestic violence. And that's when I discovered that I was in a domestic violence home. I didn't even know this was abuse. All this time, I didn't know I was part of an abusive marriage. I thought it was normal. I thought that it was just part of the marriage, have ups and downs. But I always thought things were going to get better. So when somebody tells me about domestic violence, I start reading about it. Then something comes up about, about a narcissist. I start reading about it. I start reading about how to know that I'm in these kind of relationships and everything checks. And this is when I realized that this is what I'm living I guess that's when I open my eyes and I'm like, I can't be here anymore. I need to have a plan B and C because I am scared for my life. He was at this point, I guess he was trying to make me do something so then he can blame me. He would fight with me and he would get very close to my face and just tell me, for example, um... If I didn't clean the house or if I didn't cl- cook for him, he would get very close to me without yelling because we had cameras in the house and he would be like, So, what are you going to do? Are you going to fight me? Are you going to hit me? Hit me. Come here, hit me. Hit me in front of the camera. So, he would do this kind of stuff to make me lose control and do something. And one day after one of these fights, I'm like, I'm done. I am out, you win, and I left. The next day, I, for the first time, reported him to the police with the threatens, like he was threatening me with the operation. And so I just, I, I went to the police and I said what he was telling me because this was after a fight and I just said what he said to me and I never came back. After that, as at this moment, I didn't have my papers, my green card, anything. But maybe a few weeks after I left the house, one of the organizations that I called way back, he they called me back, and they actually took my case. So um, I ended up applying to a VAWA, which is a self petition kind of visa. Um, when you've been in a domestic violence um, relationship. So this was very hard. When you apply for this visa, you have to prove, and that's what they say, the exact words that it says when you look at it. It says that you have to be a victim of uh, extreme cruelty. So that was my whole thing at this point. How do I know that I am a victim of extreme cruelty? I think it's such a big word, you know. Um, But this organization took my case. They were very good to me. They were very gentle and they helped me a lot because I was, you know, very bad at this moment. I was going through this by myself. At the same time, he was telling my parents, he wouldn't tell me that, but he would tell my parents that he wanted to help me. And that he loved me, but then he was um, telling me at the same time that he wanted the divorce and then he wanted to apply for spousal support. He wanted me to pay him um, because he wasn't working. So he was just playing games, you know, with all of us, which he was very good at it. So um, when I discovered that I was in an abusive relationship, I thought that the son's mother uh, was the person who knew him better and who lived that with him so i talked to her we met and i just said to her i want you to tell me what kind of relationship you had with him why do you hate him so much she ended up telling me the story which i also heard from him all the time and it was different (laughs) he told me a different story and I'm like, mind blowing. Like, how, how this happened? How did, why did he tell me all these lies? So, for example, I realized, or she told me that when we just got married, he went back to court and said that he wanted weekends. He would tell me that she just wanted to live her life and he would just send the key to our house. So these type of lies that they were happening, I just had no idea. And also in the relationship, the same words, the same name calling. He didn't even change it. Like he wasn't even original with that. (laughs) He would call her the same things that he was calling me. And I'm like, I can't believe it. Because that's when I realized this is a pattern, you know. He has been doing this with every relationship that he has and it's not going to change and at this moment I'm even still friends with the kid's mother she's very nice and I understand what she went through so that like made us closer and I kind of understand why she was the way she was with him I never under- understood that and I always not always but like sometimes I would blame her for being so so, like, strict with my ex, you know. Um, now I know why. So, I applied for BAWA. The process lasted for about two and a half years. In the meantime, I got my divorce. Thank God. <laughs> um, like, uh, like, eight months after that, um, I finally got my divorce, it was finalized. I got my work permit a a year after I sent all the paperwork for VAWA. And then a year and a half later, I became a resident of these countries, (laughs) Um, which was very good. I was still thrilled with that.
0: (laughs) And when it came to the divorce and how he was dealing with that, did he try to hoover you back during the process? And uh, what was, did he ask for anything in the divorce? Did he try to get anything from you?
1: Yes. So during the divorce, it was this was during COVID. So the courts were closed. And uh, a few months after we, like I left the house, he tried to win me over. So he because when I when I took all my things out of the house, he didn't ta- let me take anything from the house, like the bed or the plates or silver or anything like this so he started calling me or texting me saying hey you can just come and get whatever he wanted to give me so he was doing that and then we had a cat together which unfortunately he stayed with the cat and the cat had an accident so he kind of like had me with that at least to have any type of like conversations with me so he would text me how she was doing I even visited her one time but I told him because she needed surgery just let me stay with the cat and I take care of her but he didn't want so that lasted for maybe like a month like the going back and forth about the cat and I think he thought that he could win me over with that like trying to be nice to me and like I remember the only time I went to visit the cat I went with a friend and he was like, oh, look, I've been doing some gardening and I have this chocolate mint plant. Look, smell. Oh, my God. And he's like, oh, yeah. And talking Spanish to me, which that was our thing. He would talk to me in Spanish when we were in front of people and not in English, but I know English. I can speak English. So I think he was just trying to show off like he could speak a little bit of Spanish. Um, and we always spoke in Spanish in the in English in the house. And he was just trying to show off in front of people. So when the courts opened, we started going to the divorce. I asked my lawyer, um, I said, Hey, if he's in a good mood, I would like to have, we had three TVs. So I'm like, I would like to have one TV. I would like to have. My sister gave me, like, some cups. So I'm like, I would like to have those cups which say best sisters and stuff like that. And I like to draw and, like, all my colors and my markers and this kind of stuff that I like to decorate. So I said, just if he wants to. If he doesn't want to, then it's okay. And then one day he called me uh, on, on a Sunday and he said, I can't believe that you don't want to sign the papers um, because you want the stuff from the house, how you have the nerve of asking for anything. You don't deserve anything. You're not part of this family anymore. And then he said, I'm trying to be nice with you, but if you are not nice, then I guess I'm going to have to um, uh, apply for spousal support. That's when he started threatening me with that. So, Then that I wasn't his his friend, I was his enemy. And he tried to do everything to just still play games with me and, like, play with my mind and make me feel guilty. But, like, at this point, I wasn't taking it anymore. So I'm like, I have a lawyer. Just talk to my lawyer. And it was so bad that my lawyer had to talk to his counselor who was helping him. And say, hey, if he keeps texting her, then we're going to have to put a restriction order. And that's when he stopped.
0: So after everything is over, you get your immigration status that you're a permanent resident. And congratulations.
1: Thank you.
0: And how has your healing process been um, you know, going through this um, whirlwind of abuse.
1: So it took me a long, and it's still, you know, the healing process is such a roller coaster. I, I would say the first year I was going to therapy every single week. I was going to support groups. I was reading books. I was doing everything I could in my power to to feel better and to feel. Not guilty anymore, and it was actually how I discovered this podcast. Um, it was back in that time, and it really helped me a lot just to listen to people that went through similar situations and that I wasn't alone in this. So when I started doing that, and we were during COVID, I didn't, I didn't have the chance to do much but I'm like, I need to rediscover myself. I feel that I don't know myself anymore. I don't know who I am anymore. So I started picking up hobbies and I remember that first year I went to, I did Zumba classes online. I did gardening. I started going hiking. I started cooking. I started doing all these things that I never did that I wanted to do, but I never had a chance or a person to go to. And I also discovered that being with myself is awesome. And um, I would say it was very hard. Um, but little by little, it started getting better. And then I also started discovering that things could be good without him, that I didn't need him as he used to tell me. So I'm like, well, maybe what he was telling me wasn't true and maybe I'm worth of everything that I deserve. I started to have enough money to pay my bills and to go out without like having to cut one or the other. Um I felt that I was happy again. I even compared my pictures from that last year to like a year later or two years later. There was such a difference in my face. I feel more in peace and I feel definitely happier. And um, I would say also a big part of my healing process was my support. You know, I had, I started telling my story to my friends and to my family and they were very understanding and they really helped me through the whole thing. So when I felt sad or when I had these low moments, I would just contact my parents or someone and they will always be there for me. And that really helped me.
0: And if you had any words of wisdom for everyone listening, what would they be?
1: I would always say, I believe you. You can get out of this situation. And believe me, it will always get better. That's what I would say.
0: Well Octavia I really just want to thank you for being here with us today and sharing your story we've never had in immigration abuse story before on the show so just a big thank you for highlighting so many of the different points and how an abuser can can really uh, take advantage and further take advantage of someone who is vulnerable like a a new immigrant to the country and you know a lot of what was keeping you in this relationship was this person who was always playing the victim and making you feel guilty for everything and, and keeping you in this relationship a little bit longer. And um, just thank you for, for telling your story. You did a great job. And I can't thank you enough uh, for being here with us today.
1: Thank you so much, Brandon. I really appreciate this. And um, thank you for all you're doing. You help a lot of people
0: well thank you octavia for being our guest here again today and if you want to be a guest like octavia was today and you want to be on our survivor story episodes please do go to our website at narcissistapocalypse.com there's a button at the top of the page that says guest form when you click on that button it takes you to our guest form page there you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at narcissistapocalypse.gmail.com or fill out the guest form and press the submit button and please do send it in the format that we ask for. And if you are someone that needs support, we here at Narcissist Apocalypse have a support group. So at NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, there's a button that says support group. When you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. Inside, you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from survivors just like you. And it's a wonderful group of people on there, and you can share your experiences with all of them and make friends too. So if you need support, join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. At DomesticShelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're dealing with. They have every phone number and email address and web address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you're in. DomesticShelters.org has it there. It is a wonderful free resource and organization. So if you need extra support, please do visit DomesticShelters.org. And we have another friend of the show called Shelter Movers. And Shelter Movers can be found at sheltermovers.com. And Shelter Movers helps the survivors of Course of Control transition to a better and safer life. It is a volunteer organization, a donor supported charitable organization as well. It is currently. Only in Canada, but they're looking to expand in the United States. And what they do is they help coordinate moves for people who are getting out of course of control. They help you to safety, get all of your things out of your home into storage, all of your belongings into storage. And they can do this for your pets and livestock too. It is a wonderful organization. So if you need help from them or just want to donate to them, please go to sheltermovers.com. And that is it for today's episode, today's survivor story. So for myself and Octavia. We hope you have a good night.